A reading from Isaiah. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. The word of the Lord. A reading from Ephesians. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. 
Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they'd heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. We've just started uh, the new season in church, Epiphany, and it's probably helpful to start out with a way of conceiving the rest of the season. And so Epiphany is not to be confused with just ordinary learning. Many of you probably just learned there are five verses to that song. (laughs) I doubt that was an epiphany for you. An epiphany, I want to suggest, is something a little bit, well, not a little, grossly deeper than regular learning. And so if I can, I'm going to put it in the words of um, Swiss psychologist Jean Piaget. Okay? John Piaget says, we all have a way of looking at the world, the world's comfortable to us, particularly after the age of, say, seven, and we get up and we have kind of regular expectations, things happen, there are some surprises, but pretty much we're comfortable with life. And then along comes some new information or a new experience that is completely different from the way we're used to looking at the world. So he calls that new information, and now we have a crisis What will we do with our way of looking at the world? Piaget says we do one of two things. We either sort of say, oh, that's strange, and go back to what we were doing, or change that information slightly so that it fits into what we were used to. That's called assimilating. We take that new experience and assimilate it into what we're used to seeing and doing, And of course, when we do that, we end up at a new equilibrium, we're okay, right? Crisis averted, everything's fine. The other option, says Piaget, is that that new information that so bothers our worldview, well, in fact, we accommodate our worldview to the new information. That is, we change the entire way we look at the world. That's an epiphany, when everything changes because of a new experience or new information. Unlikely, five verses in that song is an epiphany for you. Uh, Again, might be an assimilation for you. Epiphanies are those sorts of things where once you've seen them, you can never unsee them. Never. Because essentially, not just... uh, Your factual knowledge has changed your mind's eye or your heart, to use biblical religious language. Your heart has changed, and it becomes very difficult to unchange your heart. So this is the feast of the epiphany. And if we can, I want to start out with how we usually assimilate it. When we assimilate the Feast of the Epiphany, we have all this tradition that's about 700 to 1,000 years old, about three kings. 
So according to the tradition, that's about 700, 1,000 years old, there were three kings, and they may also have been wise men, and they came from somewhere in the east, and they were following a star, and sure enough, well, they knew something fantastic, right? They knew something that the Jewish leaders didn't really seem to know, was that there was this new thing being done. And they call him a king, right? And so they've come to pay homage to the king of the Jews. Now what's amazing, right, in the story is that the Jewish people who sort of should know don't seem to know that. And they go and they give him gifts. And you just heard the traditional interpretation of all those gifts. Gold is something you give to kings, like crowns. Frankincense is incense that you sort of burn at the altar because the smell is good for the deity. You'll make your own choice about that. Um, it's a little smoky today. Um, and then myrrh is a burial spice. So the traditional assimilated version of the story is that the three kings come to pay homage to another king who they recognize to be the king of kings. And they give him gifts of kingship and divinity and they prepare him for his own burial by giving him myrrh. Okay? Well, you got to wonder in that story, who has an epiphany? Did they? Because it's not like they became Christians. We just need to be honest. There's no Christian community that results from this. Okay? They saw the baby and they left. And, and there's no historic evidence that there's a Christian community in the Arabian Peninsula or Iran that starts at this time. Certainly, in this version of the story, there is a reminder for us, right? So in some ways, this one's known. This one's comfortable, but it sure could stretch us a little bit, right? Because isn't it saying, the story is telling us that there are outsiders who know more about what God's up to than we do. Maybe even foreign rulers have some sense of how to run just government. Maybe people who, well, have different customs and practices, God will work with them and they can recognize God when they see God. That's a pretty good story, right? I mean, that, that's a pretty good stretcher. That's something we sure have to accommodate because in general, we get used to doing it our way. But I want to play with you a little bit more, if that's okay. Uh, I hope you'll accommodate me right now. Um, that wasn't even a good joke. Okay, so, um, <laughs> so it turns out that uh, for the last 750 to 1,000 years, we, we, we've decided there are three of these people, that they're all men, and that they're sort of uh, wise men or kings. And in fact, if you're in Cologne, Germany, you can go and visit their tombs. They're enshrined in the Kölner Dome, which is sort of the relative apex of the whole area. Anybody been there before? It's really big. There's like 500 steps to get to the top. It's, it's impressive. And the wise men are buried there. And a lot of people think that uh, they became kings and wise men just around the time that the Kölner Dome was built so that they could attract pilgrims to come see the relics. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to ruin the story for you, but what I want to tell you is there's a much older tradition, and it actually shows up in, in the Greek language. The Greek language, of course, calls them magi right? The Magi. And you know that word, too. Of course, the Greek language doesn't tell you that there's three of them, and it doesn't say that they're men. It says they're Magi, and you recognize Magi because you know it's at the base of the word magic. (laughs) 
These are three magicians or, or multiple magicians. Could be women, could be men. And the magicians have come a long way. These could be the kind that pull rabbits out of hats at children's parties. Would that change the story for you? It would, right? And that's probably worth pursuing. Uh, more than likely, these people, says about 95% of, of pretty moderate biblical scholars, says these people are Zoroastrian priests. Okay? Now, now, the Zoroastrian religion still exists today, pretty small, but at the time of Jesus, it, it was eroding a little bit, but it was really big. That was the official religion of the Persian Empire. It, it was a monotheistic religion, right? And there's a car named after the chief deity. The Mazda car is named after Ahura Mazda, the, the, the chief god of Zoroastrian religion. And so these, these priests come presumably about 1,500 miles. The, the, most scholars will tell you that, that these folks came from a town that's no longer around in Iran, modern-day Iran. Long way. As you can imagine, they were wearing pretty different clothes. And they weren't Jewish, and they weren't Roman, and they weren't Greek. And they're astrologers. They're not astronomers. Now, they pay attention to the stars, but not in the Galilean way. No, no. The stars are there to tell them omens and portents. They read their... Oh, what's the word? I just lost it. The horoscope. They read their horoscope every day, and the horoscope said, there'll be a new baby. Go see him. And so they put on their funny-looking clothes, and they walk 1,500 miles to go see this baby. That's the story. And then they give him some stuff. And, and, you know, outside of the tradition, I want to tell you, because I was actually in the land of the Zoroastrians back in September. I went to Iran for two weeks. And you'd be amazed at what they do with that frankincense and myrrh. It's not burned at temples. Of course, they didn't have those. They're Muslim now. What they do now, as they've done for a long time, is... Um, especially ladies, and you'll see this in Dubai and other parts of the, of the Middle East too, that they have this sort of little tower-looking thing, and they'll put a really hot coal on top of it, you know, still red, and if you blow on it, it, it gets red. And then they take a piece of resin that they find in the desert, you know, tree sap, frankincense, myrrh, and they put it on top of that, and of course it smokes. And then they stand over it, and they kind of waft the smoke on their clothes like that, and that's what they use instead of deodorant. So would this change the story? <laughs> Some priests travel 1,500 miles, and they say, well, I guess we should give him something. What do we have? Um, gold, because that's money. How about some deodorant? <laughs> I kind of like that version, right? Because these people bring their wacky stuff and they give their, their normal wacky stuff, right? And, and they, they, they give it to this child because they think, well, children could use deodorant and everybody could use some money. I mean, these are pretty good gifts. I know that sounds really strange, what I'm saying, but, but I want to suggest to you a little bit more about my visit to the land of the Magi because really I think one way to read this story 
is that these people that we know to be wrong, I mean, they're religiously wrong, they wear really weird clothes, you know, like head things and curly-toed shoes, and we still have those stereotypes today. One thing I think the story might be asking us to accommodate is that those weird people are drawn to God and that they get there. And that requires us doing some accommodation, right? Because they get there in ways we don't normally travel. And having just been there, you know, that hospitality piece, I think, is probably pretty important because uh, despite what we hear about the news, having been to Iran, I've found it actually to be the most hospitable country I've been to, well, on earth. Um, now, I'm sure there are ways I could have gotten in really big trouble. Um, I, I did not, for example, um, have a chain of bullets across my, my, my chest and, you know, wave down with Iran. I did, I did not do that. Um, but while I was there... Um, it's happened at least five times. I would be out in the afternoon while my travel group was sleeping because uh, they were having kind of a siesta, and, and it was free time, and, and I thought I'd sleep when I was dead. So while I was there, I would go and see everything I possibly could. And so I did, and a few times I asked for directions, about five. And uh, each time I asked for directions, you know, people would say, where are you from? Of course, the first day I... You know, you don't want to say you're from America. They might take you hostage or something, right? So I would say something else, because um, I used to live in Malta, so I would say I'm from Malta, and nobody even knows where that is, so it was not a big problem. Um, <laughs> everybody was really happy. Oh, okay, well, here's how you get there. You know, and then after they told me, it didn't matter where I was from, so after a while, I just said I'm American. By the way, when you say you're American in Iran, people want to take their picture with you, and they really want to know if you have a Facebook account so that they can Facebook you. It's pretty interesting, right? After that, they would say, do you want someone to show you around the town? And I, and I had to say, well, yeah, but I have to be back my tour group in an hour and a half. And it was really disappointing because these five people... I'm pretty sure they meant to actually show me around the town. Um, pretty high measure of hospitality, I, I think, because again, that was every time I asked for directions. That's what I got. Good measure of hospitality. Then I ended up in this weird situation in Iran that's sort of like having these weird gifts of deodorant and, and money. Um, I was in a handicraft store, and, and that's where they sell things like carpets and, you know, uh, enameled copperware and some, some inlaid things like that, you know. And the guy who was in the store had this very interesting British English, Australian, Iranian English accent. It was really the most bizarre way of speaking I'd ever encountered. And it turned out because he lived in all of those places. So he'd learned English sort of in Iran, studied in the UK and Australia and had some trips to America. So it was just really mind-boggling trying to place the man. And he had an MBA from a school, uh, you may have heard of before, Oxford, and then he'd, he'd also been, I mean, this is an impressive guy working in a handicraft shop, right? Again, talk about surprises, right? So we sat down, we talked, and you know, this happens a lot in the Middle East, really anywhere, and, and, and it happened here as well. We spent about Two hours just kind of talking. There was no pressure to buy anything. I mean, really, even less pressure than no pressure. He was just happy to talk to somebody, right? And I was 
getting in the way of him doing sales, you know? And right towards the beginning, I'm not sure, I think he asked what I did. And by this point, it was towards the end of the trip, and I had sort of thrown caution to the wind and said, well, I'm a priest, you know? And, and he said, oh, that must be a hard job. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know, this seems pretty okay to me. So we kept talking, and he showed me pictures of he and his friends and his family and trips they'd taken. And then came this really strange moment. And I replayed it a bunch, and I don't really even remember how or why this happened. I want you to stay with me when you hear the moment, okay? He, he somehow told me that he was gay, and that all of the people in the pictures and all of the family, if they found out, would have worse than nothing to do with him. Nothing to do with him. And I sort of said, well, well, you mean they would be mad at you? And he said, no, 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 no. Mad isn't even the right word. I would be worse than dead to them. They they wouldn't talk to me upon learning that information. See, that'd that'd be an epiphany for them, right? And in that epiphany, I would be in the grave. Well, worse, because at least people visit your grave sometimes. And and here was that story, you see. Because this time I was the priest from the far-off country. And the gift I had wasn't money or frankincense or gold. The gift he ended up with was he was able to tell that truth to somebody for the first time in how many years? Maybe I was safe because since he didn't know me, what did he have to lose, right? Safe gift, but a gift of life that he needed was that he could tell another person who he was without being afraid of what he would lose. Even a priest from a different religion, in different clothes, with funny beliefs. It got me thinking, maybe that's the whole story of the Magi. See, maybe the story isn't there so that we can read about their epiphany. Maybe the story is there to remind us that we sure need to be having our own epiphanies. Epiphanies that look like Paul's reading today that says, I'm here to tell you about God's mystery. Mysteriously, God is including people in God's family that you never thought would be there. Mysteriously, God is doing that. So what if part of our need for an epiphany is to do that? Even if it means that the gift we give is something as uncommon, something we carry around in our pockets, like the ability to sit and listen to somebody tell their heart and their story. Because a lot of people, turns out, don't get to do that in the world safely. At least not in Iran. Pretty sure it's the same here. And maybe this part about epiphany is sort of that same business we read about in Isaiah. It's a beautiful vision, isn't it? Rise, shine, your light has come. The land that's in darkness will be lit up. Over you 
the Lord will rise. And maybe that's the reminder. No matter how good we think we're doing it, God will rise over us. And that epiphany is about us rising with God to places of love and compassion, hospitality, that we didn't even think we could do. But God sure thinks are going to happen eventually. If we wait, God can do this after we die. But see, the whole reason for the epiphany is why wait? Why wait when there are people in the world who need to be able to say their struggle and know at the end of their telling we will say, you are a human being. And I can't imagine being afraid. I can't imagine being afraid like that of losing everything if people found out something. So I think then the story is asking us <laughs> once again to accommodate our view of God's family and our view of God to what God's actually doing, and it's bigger than us. And I think the function of the story, at least for me, is not that I'm just supposed to have an epiphany, but I'm supposed to go out into the world and be an epiphany to other people with the way I treat them. Imagine how different this year's epiphany would be if we did some of that. Amen.